Amen. Hallelujah. How are y'all today? Well, this crowd just keeps getting bigger. I'm getting intimidated as these weeks go on by. Man, oh man. Well, um, while the computer guys are getting the screen up up there, uh, I wanted to recognize a young man that came up here from Columbus, Mississippi uh, to spend the weekend with us. Hayden, why don't you stand up and let everybody take a good look at you. Y'all give it up for Hayden Moyer. It's good to have you here, man. It's been fun. Have a seat. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, my goodness, it is great to be here with you today. Uh, today, we're going to look at the question of what is the gospel. Now, if you're visited today, let me, let me clarify something for you. Uh, what we normally do here is we pick a book of the Bible that we believe God leads us to, and then we preach through that book of, Bi preach through that book of the Bible, no matter how long it takes, a year, two years, three years, ten years. Amen, Parkway? Uh, <laughs> Something of that nature. But, but we're going to go into Luke, uh, going to start Luke in the month of March. But what our staff, through prayer, just coming into this time of transition out of Hebrews into Luke, we thought that it might be good for us to spend just a few weeks, January and February, looking at some foundational questions about the church of Jesus Christ and, and what we believe. And so we've been going through these questions over the past couple of weeks, and today the question is, what is the gospel? But as I always do, I like to give you a little... Uh, refresher from weeks past, because I know not everybody can be here every week. I understand that. And not everybody has time to sit down and go back and watch the, the live feed. I get that. So I try to give you just, the, just the, 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 the main thoughts from the previous message for just a few moments before we hit today's topic. So if you'll join me on the screen. Uh, building God's church is what we're talking about here. How do we build God's church? And we're not talking about the what? We're not talking about the building, we're talking about the people, we're talking about the folks that come to the church that believe, that are saved, that, that want to follow Jesus. We're talking about discipleship and those types of things. So how do we build God's church? Well, first thing we do is the Word builds the church, so that's why we do expositional preaching. That was the first question. The second one is, who is the God of the Bible and why do we worship Him? Today's question is, what is the gospel and why is it important? And just to give you a primer for next week, next week's question will be, what does the Bible say about conversion? So what we talk about today will go into, will end with a talk of repentance and faith and conversion. And then next week we will look at the actual topic of conversion and what that looks like in our lives. So let's do our little review here. If this computer will work for me. All right, first of all, why do we care about all this? You've heard me say that several times. I'm going to continue to say that because we, we like to ask why. How many of you like to ask why about things? You know, why, why, why? Yeah, well, the reason why we're doing this in the church is because the church of Jesus Christ is center stage in the universe. Um, I, I mean, it literally, I, I mean, the universe literally does revolve around the church of Jesus Christ and God's will through the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's lots of scriptures in the Bible that, that give us the idea that the consummation of the age will, 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 will focus around Christ and his church. So it's very important that we understand that, that we are center stage. Number two is that Christ obtained the church with his own what? Yeah, he died. The Son of God came and died for us. And that's why this is important, and that's why we should care. So why expositional preaching? I'm not going to belabor these. We've been through these already because it brings life. It's the only thing that brings life because it builds up the church, because it sanctifies the church. And the preacher's job in that process, my job, Colton's job, Clayton's job, teachers. Uh, who taught this morning for Sunday school? George Lang. George, how did he do, by the way? Amen. Say amen. All right, George. Looks like you get 
Looks like you get to teach again. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. All right. Uh, but, but our job is to, is to go to the Scripture, okay? Go to the Scripture and rightly handle the Word of God. I mean, go to it, find God's intent in it, and then bring it to you and teach it to you so you can then teach it to those that you love and apply it to your life and slowly or quickly conform your life to the will of God, okay? All right, next, biblical theology, who is God? We talked about this last week. The two types of revelation, there was general and natural revelation, and there was special revelation. Uh, general and natural revelation is what you see when you look up in the sky. You see the sun, you see the stars, you see the galaxies, uh, you see the trees, you see, when you, if, you, if, you go, if you like the outdoors and you go hunting and fishing, you see that beautiful 16-point buck walk up, amen, right? I mean, only God could make something that beautiful, amen, a 16-point buck, think about that. The fish, when you catch a big 10-pound big bass, I mean, I mean, that is general natural revelation. And definitely, let's not leave out the beauty of our wives, men, amen? The, yeah, yeah, the beauty of our wives, I mean, I mean God, thank you, God. For women, amen, guys. I mean, praise Jesus! Thank God Almighty. Where would we be without them? We're not going to talk about the guys today, okay, ladies? We're just going to cast them aside. All right. Special revelation then is the Word of God. This is special revelation. The the actual when God actually speaks directly to an individual like Abraham or like Moses or like Paul and the apostles and how Jesus walked with them and gave them that revelation. That's special revelation. Okay. Continuing on, the meta-narrative, this was a topic. Who had heard the, who the word before? If you heard this word before, raise your hand. A few of you had heard it before. Um, I didn't hear about it until I was in seminary, and it's very interesting, uh, fascinating, and it is true. The meta-narrative is the grand story, okay? The, the framework of connected stories that we have in the Bible that God used through time to bring forth Christ, Okay? All the intertwined stories that you've heard scholars talk about, the, um, the, the, the uh, scarlet thread all through the scripture, uh, things of that nature. So the meta-narrative is the grand story. We see this illustrated in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and I underline the primary words there, until the times reach their fulfillment. Now, do you grasp that? It's just hard for humanity to grasp that. But before time began... Right? God knew the exact day and the exact way that Christ would come into the world. The exact day, the exact moment Christ would die on Calvary's cross. And how? The exact time, the exact moment Christ would come out of the grave. The exact moment he would ascend and be with the Heavenly Father. And he knows the exact moment that what? He's coming back. Okay? Meta-narrative. All the way back from Genesis, from the beginning of time, all the way forward to the impending return of Christ. And here we are in what's called the last days in between his ascension and his second coming. And that's why all this is so important. Okay? So what is biblical theology? We looked at this. Remember this? God creates. God is holy. God is faithful. God is loving, and God is sovereign. We look just briefly at each one of those so we can understand the character of God and how the Bible, how the meta-narrative teaches us from Genesis all the way to Revelation about God's character and why it's so important that we go there to build God's church, okay? Now, today, take a breath. What is the gospel how many of you have been captivated by the media reporting about what has been happening in our world over the past few months? Raise your hand. 
if you have been captivated by that. We all have. Probably so much that it's a little embarrassing even to raise our hand because it has so consumed us uh, that it's a, little, it's a little shameful probably how much it has consumed us. Keeping up with the news is addictive. Would you agree with that? It is. I mean, every morning when I get up and make coffee, I find a warm spot because Angie keeps the house real cold. Can I get a witness out there from you guys? I find a warm spot in the house to try to warm up with my coffee, you know, trying to warm up from, you know, the house. And then, and then the first thing I do, other than making conscious contact with God, Lord, good morning, I, this, I'm here, thank you for not killing me in the night because I deserve death, uh, but here I am, Lord, to serve you today uh, as to the best of my ability. And then I open my smartphone up and I go straight to the news, and why is that? Because we want to know news, right? Because why? Because it affects us, does it not? It affects us, exactly. So the interesting thing about that is, is that is the primary emphasis with Christianity is what? News. That is exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is news, and not only is it news, but what kind of news is it? Hallelujah. It is the best news that has ever been told in the history of the world. Can you amen that? I mean, I've been told some good things. I have. When Angie said, I do, that was a big day for me because I was scared to death, wasn't I? I mean, I, she looked at me and thought I was going to throw up right before I asked her the question. She said, are, are you okay? Are you about to be sick? And I'm like, will you marry me? And she said, what? Yes. And I said, hallelujah, amen. The, the battle is over. She has said yes, you know. So that was really good news. But there was even better news that came before that day. The better news that came before that day happened just a few years prior to that. You know what that was? That was when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, free from sin, free from hell, free from enslavement. That is good news. That is good news. Now, so what is the good news? Is the good news, you've got to get your act together. Is that the good news? How many of y'all ever heard that before from somebody? None of y'all. I'm the only one. Okay. Jim Winchester was the only man that raised his hand this morning. How many of y'all have ever heard, man, you got to get your head, your head screwed on right? You ever heard that one? Yeah, Bill, Bill Matthews has heard that one. Get your head screwed on right. How about pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and get moving? You ever heard that one? You've heard that one. Right. What else? Fly straight, man. You got to fly straight. You got to fly straight. You ever heard that one? Sure. Of course, you've heard that one all your life, right? From a little boy growing up, you got to be a good boy, son. Just be a good boy. Got to be a good girl. Be a good girl. Be a good girl. So what is the good news? Is the good news any of these things or is it any other idea of self-help being the answer to life's questions? Is that the gospel? No. No. Now, there's nothing wrong with using some of that to somebody to try to motivate them a little bit. I mean, I've used those words myself as a father to motivate my children a little bit, to motivate other people in my life. But we make a fatal error when we think that those things represent the gospel of Jesus Christ because they don't. So the gospel, let me give you some, some, some thoughts here as we work through this. The gospel is not just that we are okay. The gospel is not just, read that for me, is he love? But he's not just love, right? See where this is going? 
The gospel is not just, read that one for me. Is he our friend? Yes, but he is not just our friend. And I will go so far to say is that friend by our normal human standards does not fit what he was speaking about in the scripture. The friend terminology, the definition of friend that he uses and the definition of friend that we use, I would say is very different. Because I don't know too many people I call friend who would die for me. I don't know too many people I call friend that die for me. But he said that's what defines it. What greater love is there that a man may what? Lay down his life for his friends. All right? The gospel is not just God will renew creation. Is he going to renew creation? Has he already renewed us? Yes. But that's not all it is to the gospel. And sometimes we get trapped in these, in these microcosms of, of these smaller truths and we miss the greater truth of who God is in fullness. Now you might think, well, that's, what's the problem with that? Well, you, you'll never come to full maturity. If you camp out, if all you say is God is love, 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 and you never understand that, God, that, that there's a lot about God that's wrathful, and God is also a judge, and God is also righteous, and he is also the disciplinarian of the universe, all those things are encapsulated in that word, but sometimes we get caught in this huggy, lovey, feely, God is love, God is just love. Well, he is but he's a lot of other things too, okay? So, and then finally, what does the gospel require from us? These are the things we're gonna look at, and I'm gonna try to do this in blistering speed so we get out of here on time, because I know some of you are thinking right now, he's never gonna finish all this. So, the good news is not simply that we are okay. What are we doing here today in church as we attend and participate in church? Is this some form of therapy session that is supposed to make us feel better? No, it's not. Is this some type of entertainment that is supposed to lift us up into some form of hype that somehow gets us through next week? No. Do we come here because misery loves company? Who's ever heard that before? <laughs> no, we're not coming here because, oh, we're just Christians. We're, no, we don't come here because misery loves company. The good news is not simply that we are okay. We are most definitely not okay and we figure that out after we've lived for about 10 to 15 years and definitely by the time we're 30 because by the time we're that old what have we done to some people in our lives buried them we have been to the funerals we have seen the caskets we have listened to the preacher speak we have dressed up nice and we have gone and paid our respects and so we know that we're not okay we realize that we are most definitely not okay, and in fact, we'll one day be dead, and the existence of death makes us ask the question, why do we die? And we know the answer to that. I mean, if you've been coming to church for any amount of time and have read your Bible in Genesis at any point in your life, you know that Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3 affected what? The entire universe. Our universe went from perfect to fallen and therefore has to be reborn. So the situation, my friends, is so dire that we cannot fix it in and of ourselves. Even though we are a very capable people, can I get a witness? We are. We can do some phenomenal things in this world. I've seen it happen. I've been a part of some of them. 
But the one thing we cannot do, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. There has to be something miraculous. There has to be miraculous intervention to fix it. John 3, 5, look at the vocabulary the Bible uses. John 3, 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God, sorry, what's God? God, sorry, God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2, we are what in our sins? Dead in our sins and transgressions. And then James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The purpose of that scripture is to let you know that this addresses the one that says, well, you know, I've done this, 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 and this, but I had never killed anybody. So I must be okay. And God says, no, you're not okay. If you've done this, 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 and this, you're an affront to a holy and perfect God, and you are condemned to hell as a sinner outside of his grace. And so you must have Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, okay? The good news is not simply that we're okay. We are most definitely not okay according to the scripture. Romans 6, 23, read that for me. It's death. Read Romans 1, the Gentiles, Romans 1, the whole point of Romans 1 from Paul is to help the Gentile world understand that they have all sinned. The whole point of Romans 2 is the point that the Jews, they thought because they were in God's covenant that they were what? Safe. They were okay. But Paul says no. No, in fact, some of you are blatant hypocrites in the way that you live. Romans 3 is a summary chapter that basically takes those two chapters and says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, let's just read it. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one understand, no one seeks for God. That's him citing Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Do you get that? Paul is actually citing the Psalms as scripture in his, in his, in his letter uh, to Rome. Then it says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is one of the most striking ones to me. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. You know what an asp is? It's a very poisonous snake. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he talking about? Us. Before we came to know Jesus. He's talking about every human being on planet earth that has ever lived. Every Jew, every Gentile, all of us. Don't go around here thinking that you're good. You're wicked. Jesus would not have had to come if you were good. We're sinners and we're wicked. Now these scriptures, would you say those were really fun to think about and read? No, they were very harsh, very harsh. So why such harsh language from Paul? I mean, 
this is a fair question. I mean, what do these scriptures have to do with good news at all? How is the fact that he just read, read off or wrote down a laundry list of things that I am, and now he's talking about good news? What is that? Because why? Because before we can realize our need for Christ, we must first understand that we are sinners separated from an, eter from an eternal, holy God. That's why. That's why this easy, seeker-friendly church has been a pretty dismal failure for the most part. You can't bait them in with a whole bunch of entertainment and make things real easy and then throw the gospel of Jesus Christ on them. It, it totally confuses people. They need to understand how wretched and how rotten and how sinful and how wicked they are. Angie and I laugh all the time because people, when they grew up, they taught their children John 3.16. We taught ours Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is wicked and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I wanted my kids to know they were wicked. People are wicked and we don't get it. But the ultimate problem is we're born sinners because of the sin of our first parents thousands of years ago. They made a terrible decision, rebelled against God, listened to Satan instead of God, and through that choice brought death to all humanity. So we need to be told by God how bad we are in the harshest terms possible. Are you one of those people that learns real quick or do you always have to go the hard way? If you're a hard way person, raise your hand. I'm a hard way person. I think most people are probably hard way people. And I think God knows that about us. I think he knows that most of us are hard way people. So he has to give it to us as harsh as he possibly can to understand, to wake us up to the fact that we need Christ. I mean, that's what he had to do to me. He just about had to kill me before I came to know him. He really did. I mean, I went my own way for so many years and just wrote him off and wrote family off and he pummeled me and he pummeled me and he pummeled me with all types of different disciplines. And I'm telling you, I went to Calvary's cross kicking and screaming and cursing. But I finally went because I didn't want to die. Because I wanted to know Christ. We are what the Bible calls depraved. You ever heard that term before? Depraved. There's a lot of people that don't like that word. They don't like that word because they don't like to believe that they are depraved. Are there different levels of depravity? Of course there are. Not everybody that's lost goes out and kills people. They don't. But there are some that do. But it doesn't matter what level of crime or what level of sin you commit. Everyone is depraved unless they know Jesus. I mean, that's, that's Christian theology. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe what the Bible teaches about it. We are depraved. Yes, we really are that bad. One of the things you'll notice about me, hopefully, is that whenever I hear a word that one of my kids has done something bad, do you know what I never have said? They would never do anything like that. <laughs> God is my witness. I don't think that I've said that. I may have a time or two, but I don't think I've ever said that. Because you know what? 
Yes, they would. They would. Because they're sinners. They'll do it. There's not much that surprises me anymore about humanity and the things that they'll do and the wickedness that they'll, that they'll contrive in their heart. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just unbelievable what, what, what humanity would do. We are that bad. We are. I mean, we deserve, we deserve the punish God, punishment God gives us. We deserve death. And we deserve an eternity in hell. I mean, I can remember when, after I got saved, I, I, was so, I was so consumed in the reality that I was no longer hell-bound Nothing else really mattered. I mean, I was just completely filled with joy and awe and wonder that I no longer was headed toward hell, that I had been forgiven of my sins, that God loved me, that I was now a child of God. I got to go to church every week. Hallelujah! There was a Sunday school class with my name on it. There was a Wednesday night Bible study that I got to come and hang out with all these people that love the Scripture and love God. I mean, man, I thought I had found the answer to the universe, and I really had in Jesus Christ. But we are that bad. We deserve it because we have sinned against a perfect, holy, and loving God. And it's not until we understand that we are not okay that we are ready to hear the good news of forgiveness through Christ. Right? Right. The gospel is also not just God is love. And this is the one that you're itching to hear my argument about. I can just feel the tension from the congregation. God is love. The Bible is clear about that. But is that the whole story? Remember the other characteristics of God, right? Creative, holy, faithful, and sovereign. So don't camp out in love the whole time. Don't camp out there. There's other characteristics of God you need to know because you won't come to the fullness in understanding who he is unless you understand the other characteristics of, of, of God. You have to understand, no matter how ugly, no matter how difficult they may be, no matter how much you may disagree with them or no matter how much you may have been taught your entire life by other people to disagree with them, if the Bible teaches it, guess what? I mean, yeah. I understand it pushes against our flesh purpose of the scripture is to push against our flesh, to make us uncomfortable, to bring us to, to a place of desperation to know that there is but one way out, and that one way is who? Christ. Yeah. Have you ever heard someone say, how can an all-loving God allow bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that? Let me give you two answers. Number one, there are no good people. I'm not, you're not. God's the only one that's good. The second one is, we must understand the definition of love. Big time. I mean, my, if there was two things, if I, if I was given a crowd of 10,000 Christians to preach to, the, what I, I would take friend, and I would take love, and I would do a deep exegetical explanation of both of those terms and try to reposition our minds around what that means according to the gospel. Because America has devastated those two words philosophically, really has. We misunderstand the definition of love. The gospel is not just God is love. Now let's talk about love. So how loving would it be to let a child go into the woods alone? That'd be downright stupid and unloving, right? A child, now I'm not talking about somebody Micah's age. I'd turn him loose in a heartbeat, all right? All right, I'm talking about somebody Chloe's age. You know, a four, five, six-year-old. I mean, I mean, a bobcat could, could carry him off. I mean, if they, get, they go to 50 feet, they're going to get lost. 
and they're going to starve to death quick. That's, that's not loving. Number two, here's one, that, here's one. I put this in here because you know me, I'm a, reformed, I'm a reformed alcoholic. I don't drink anymore, right? How loving would it be to give someone who is a known alcoholic a bottle of booze for his birthday? How loving would that be? But he wants it. He likes it. He says he needs it. I'm his friend. So why don't I buy him what he wants for his birthday? What am I doing to him? Hurting him. Yeah. Killing him. What about this? How loving would it be for me to give a family member that had a shopping compulsion a credit card and say, go have a ball at Target. I didn't hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. How, how loving would that be? It would not be loving. Biblical love, my friends, the love that Christ brought us, the love that Christ gave us, is a disciplinary, has a disciplinary aspect that is very unpopular. We, in general, want to take sin and sweep it under the rug and never talk about it, never deal with it. Are you ever going to heal and be able to overcome it if that's how we handle it? No. It's like your weakness as people, your weakness in the workplace, your weaknesses. I mean, when you work a job, you have reviews, and those, those reviews are specifically for make, taking these areas in which you may be deficient and making you better so that you become promotable and do better in your own work, right? God's the same way in the kingdom. The process is called sanctification and discipline. He puts things into your life to drive you into the text or to drive you to talk to other Christians that helps you understand what may be going on in your life so that you can move forward in your faith and grow. It's the same thing. When we say that God is love, the answer is yes, but it's not the kind of love that we see advertised in the world. I, I just, I can't emphasize that enough. That's really more lust. That's more eros is what the world shows us, not agape, okay? John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another uh, th that should be love, not own another. Sorry about that. Love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that somebody what lays down his life for his friends. So the world's definition of love focuses on what? I mean, is that not true? Self-indulgence. But God's definition of love focuses on self-sacrifice, Right? 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our, our lives down for the brothers. That's literally giving up your life, not, not cutting a check when they're in financial need, although that's involved. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the literal act of death. That's what he means. Something happened? Uh-oh. Did I do that? Okay, all right, I'm panicking. This is all I got, Stephen. Okay, all right. The, the gospel is not just Jesus wants to be our friend. Now, the Bible clearly teaches what? Jesus is our friend. I mean, we just read the scripture. He uses that terminology, okay? He is also not just an example to follow, although that is true as well. What I'm trying to do is help you look deeper from these little cliche-ish things that we mouth about to the deeper principle behind the biblical truth. To get it. 
I'm a friend. If I'm a friend of this man's in the church of Jesus Christ, that means I'm willing to lay down my life for him. Do I look to Paul as an example? Yes, but I also look further than that. He was an apostle that that what he wrote is divine scripture, which means when he gives me a commandment, I don't say things like, well, Paul was just wrong. He didn't know what he was writing about. No, he, he was an apostle. What he wrote in the Bible, it's divine scripture. It's true. We have, to, we have to be obedient to it. So being a Christian is not simply about developing a relationship or following an example. We have real sin that must be addressed. So the center of Christ's mission was what? Yeah, let's not forget that. I mean, yes, his, his Sermon on the Mount, yes, his teachings are divine, yes, we apply them to our lives, but ultimately, he came to die. Death. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. And get this, he chose to die at Passover, right? To make it clear that his death was a what? Sacrifice. I mean, they crucified people in Rome all the time. All the time. But the Father, in his sovereignty, sent Christ to Jerusalem in his Passion Week and put him on Calvary's cross the day they slaughtered the lambs. Jesus Christ is my son. He is the Lamb of God sent to die for the sins of the world. So his ministry, specifically his death, illustrates four truths on which our friendship with Christ is built, right? Number one, redemption. This is an economic term. How many of you when you were kids, oh boy, I'm really showing my age now, had bottles that you took back to the store and got some change for them? Who did that? Don't you want those days back? I mean, the aluminum recycling centers, they're cool, but, you know, but, but taking the bottles back to the store and getting a pocket full of change that was like, I felt like I was the richest kid in the world when I did that, right? No, no longer do we have that. But redemption is an economic term. So when the Bible says that we are redeemed, it means that we have been bought out, bought out of slavery. So as God brought Israel out of Egypt, God has brought us out of slavery. We have been bought with his blood and brought out of slavery. So redemption. Number two, reconciliation. This is a re relational term. All this, all this is involved in his friend, what it means to be the savior, what it means to be the friend. All of this. Reconciliation. Through Christ's death, God has reconciled himself to us. Fellowship with God has been restored because sin has been dealt with and the curse has been reversed forever for those who believe in him. Justification, propitiation, that's a legal term. Christ's death deals with the reality of our guilt before God and the punishment we deserve. We have been justified, a declaration of not guilty. Our punishment has been placed upon who? You wanna test this and see how carnal your kids are the next time one of them gets in trouble? Call one of them and say, hey, you can take his punishment today. Would you be willing to do that? You know what they say? No! All right, that's what Jesus did for us. He died for your sins. So think about that. You're not willing to take the spanking for your brother, but Jesus took it for you so that you could have eternal life. That helped him understand that, okay? Spiritual warfare, final one. Military terms. 
Mark Woods, military terms. Christ's death disarmed the powers and authorities of in the heavenly places. Do you see all that? All that's tied up in Jesus Christ. Christ isn't just our friend. He is, he is, but it's a different kind of friend than most of us would say, hey, that guy's my friend, just flippantly. Just because you've known somebody a certain amount of time, or you went to school with them, or you call him my friend. That ain't the kind of friend Jesus is. You can work that in there. I mean, you've known Jesus for a while, and he is your friend, but he's much more than just that. By his death on the cross, he has become the lamb that was slain, our redeemer, our reconciler, has conquered our most deadly enemy and satisfied the wrath of God. Revelation 5, 5 through 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That is what Jesus has done for us. It's phenomenal. The gospel is not just God will renew creation. It is true that God will renew creation. The new heaven and the new earth is clearly taught in Revelation, but must not, but must not only believe it, we must proclaim this truth and live in anticipation of it. So the second coming, the new heaven and the new earth, every day of our lives when we wake up, we should think to ourselves, today could be the day. I mean, it could, today could be the day that Jesus comes back. I mean, what, what, I mean, what, what am I doing? How am I spending my life? Am I, am I doing everything I can for Christ? Am I being the husband I need to be? Am I being the father I need to be? Am I being the preacher I need to be? Am, am I doing the things that I need to push under the urgency of the second coming and the renewal of all things? That's the point he's making, the point I'm making. We do not sit back and wait. We must push forward in obedience with urgency and anticipation of Christ's second coming. We are taught by Christ to get baptized, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but we must proclaim and respond also, which brings us to our final point, our response to the gospel. Is the gospel just information that we get on Sundays and high-five people over and hoop and holler? No. There must be a response. The good news is that the one and only holy and true God of the universe created us in his own image to know him. We sinned and became alienated from God. God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taking on himself the sins of humanity. This is the gospel. You wanna know what the gospel is, what the Bible says, this is it. He rose from the dead, like that song that we sang earlier that Steve led us in, proving that God accepted his sacrifice and that his wrath had been satisfied. He ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to reside in all who have faith in Christ and repent of their sin. That's the gospel. There it is right there. If you want to know what the gospel is, there it is in those one, two, three, four, five bullet points. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not that complicated, but it is extremely majestic and deep and incredible, the gospel. So our response, what is repentance? and belief and faith. That's the question, right? Okay, we've heard it, we, we, we believe it. I mean, we're, we're hearing what you're saying, so what do we do? Paul says, how do I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Mark 1.15, now after John was arrested, that was John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is repentance? Regeneration and repentance. You could probably put those together, okay? Regeneration is when you go from lost to being saved, right? From a non-believer to a believer. The Holy Spirit does that. And this is where the big argument through the centuries exists, right? Which comes first, belief or regeneration? I ain't arguing that with you, okay? I, I, I am completely fine with not understanding which comes first. Are y'all? I'm completely fine with that. Y'all wanna argue? Go somewhere else and argue about it. I'm not arguing about that. When the gospel is preached, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, I believe, and I'm saved. That's it, man. So regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where that statement came from? The Baptist faith and message. Copied and pasted it right, in, right into, this, to, into this thing today for you. Every Baptist in North America that says they believe the Baptist faith and message believes that statement. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. I'm going this way, and I'm sinning, and I'm carnal, and I'm loving life, and I'm indulging myself. The gospel comes, bam, conviction of sin, belief in Jesus Christ, realizing the cross, realizing his grace, his love, and his mercy puts me in a different spot. I realize that I, I have no hope without him. Repentance, faith comes. I turn, and now I'm walking with the Lord Jesus in a constant state of repentance and thankfulness and joy, being a new creature. That's the gospel. The acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to him as Lord and Savior, complete acceptance of the truth of the person and work of Christ Jesus as presented by the Old and New Testament. I added that because I, today I think you have to be specific. I think you have to be specific. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things about Jesus thing in the scripture, amen? I mean, I mean, they're out there by the hundreds of thousands saying, saying things that are not in the scripture about who Jesus is. So I say the Old and New Testament. If you're truly gonna believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the one that the Bible describes in the Old and New Testament. That's the Jesus Christ we're talking about. Final scripture and we're done. What is the gospel? Matthew 10, this was a commission that Jesus gave his apostles right before he sent them out the first time. This is probably one of the most shocking passages in the Bible that you can read when Jesus gave this commission. It's very unlike the great commission at the very end of Matthew. Do not think, Jesus, Jesus speaking to his disciples, okay, right before he sends them out the first time on their first two and two. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a what? People are going to fight over him. People are going to fight over who he is. We've seen plenty of that, have we not? Plenty of that. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's how serious the gospel is. It even gets to your in-laws, amen? Yeah. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You ever known one of those situations before? Child is a member of an unbelieving home, goes and gets saved at church camp, comes home, finds out that the child has made a profession of faith, and guess what he never gets to do at the church? Never comes to get baptized. 
From that point forward, most times they won't even let them come back to church anymore. It scares them half to death. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. It's terrible. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love our mothers and fathers. I don't know who spins all that way out of whack. That's not what Jesus is saying. That would go against the entire code of the Ten Commandments in honoring your father and mother. That's not what he's saying. What's he saying? That you love God more. And loving God more will cause you to honor and respect them even more. That, but that's how this stuff gets, well, God told me I'm supposed to, to, to hate my mom and daddy. No. That is hyperbole trying to get through our twisted brains that we're supposed to love God more than any human being. And then that love mysteriously and supernaturally love toward God turns it right back around and puts it right toward man. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You could rewrite that, we won't, but we could, and we could say, and whoever does not die for me, right? What does the cross represent? Punishment and death is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sunday school today, we, we, with, the, with the children, we talked about Matthew 16, 26, I think it was. Who would want to gain the whole world and do what? Lose their soul. What is your soul worth? What is it worth? Jesus. It's worth Jesus. He died for your soul. He died for it. So whoever finds his life in this world, when you, find, when you hear people say, I'm trying to find myself, I'm trying to find myself, I'm trying to find myself, okay, that will never end. Clayton talked about that at men's group. You, you're trying to put everything else in your life. You're trying to fill that void of emptiness with everything else that life has to offer except the one sent by God who was meant to fill it, which is Christ. And until you do that, there will always be an emptiness, there will always be a longing that you never understand, that you'll never be able to fill. That's the gospel. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay. <laughs> Somebody wanna find her? Just, just kidding. <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray together and close out. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your Bible being so clear about the gospel. Lord, help us to understand the proper understanding of love and friendship the way your Bible teaches it in the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. Help us know that you are much more than just a couple of words. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords that has come in flesh died on the cross buried in a tomb and three days later rose from the grave and now you're at the right hand of the Father dear Lord I pray if there's anyone here today Lord as we always do there's always an invitation every time we close an opportunity for anyone to come that is sensing conviction on their heart 
spiritual conviction on their heart because you are the one that saves. You are the one that brings conviction. Your word is preached. The Holy Spirit works in tandem with your word to bring conviction, to bring new life. Father, we pray if there's one here today that they would respond. I've always said that you don't have to walk an aisle to be saved. You don't. You cry out to him wherever you are, whenever you're desperate, whenever you come to that place where you realize you're ready for him and you're tired of running and you're tired of fighting and you want to believe the truth of Christ. It could be any time, anywhere. I know for me it was years after I had not, after I'd stopped going to church. From time to time, my mind would bring back memories of my grandmother and being in church at First Baptist Greenville, Mississippi. And that seed that was implanted bore fruit and I was saved. I believed, I cried out to him. So Father, we pray today, if there's one here, let them cry. Let them cry to Jesus. Let them come to repentance, faith and belief. Let them be saved. Let them hear the good news of salvation, the good news that they're a sinner, but God has made a way through Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his current ministry, Lord, he awaits. He awaits for the sinner to cry out and to save. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for just a brief moment of response? Praise the Lord.